a sedate podcast for you this month, kicking off with a chat with Wild and Food and Drinks podcast old friend Alex, the commercial forager from Canada, telling us about how you can turn a timber forest into a paying forest without chopping the timber down. <laughs> then the ending with fly fishing over a posh river with my friend John. Thanks again for downloading. Thanks again for downloading all the other episodes. You're great. Thank you, listener. Enjoy. So there's this community in Pemberton, in, in northern British Columbia, called it's called Mount Curry. It's a very impoverished First Nations community. And uh, every year, the big moneymaker in the community is pine mushrooms. And the pine mushroom area is called Blackwater. And it's a cut block that was designated for logging by the timber company that owned it. And they valued the timber and said, okay, the standing value is X dollar. And the community said, well, what's the NTFP value, the non-timber forest product value of the pine mushrooms? And in three years, the value of the pine mushrooms exceeds the value of the standing timber. So they said, well, don't log it, we'll buy it. And it pays for itself in three years. And now they own a community forest that produces pine mushrooms every year and employs the whole community. From the youngest kid up to the oldest person, they, have, they all pick pines. It's sloped like this. It's like a perfect, easy, cruisy, super yeah. easy forest to pick in full of pine mushrooms. And they're worth, I mean, they're not worth what they were once worth because the Japanese industry is, you know, the Japanese don't have money for fun things anymore. They're hurting. But it's still worth 30 bucks a pound for number one pines. So, you know, there's money to be made. Yeah, right. yeah. I mean, that's what it's worth yeah, to a restaurant. That's did not the, did the, the good old days. Did the community approach that by telling, like telling the logging company? <laughs> hey, we'll buy it. Don't touch it, we'll buy it. We'll buy it outright. They hired a consultant mm-hmm. to, to value the NTFP resource on site. And that consultant went and, and the NTFP resource was the mushroom. The pine mushroom, yeah. yeah. And that's not looking at huckleberry or floral greenery yeah. or exactly, any other things. That's exactly things. what Dave was just saying. Yeah. You get like these ancillary kind of... Yeah, other benefits. Yeah. But and, and then you could always value it as an ecological service for air cleaning and water cleaning. And like there's an ecological service provided by keeping the forest standing. Yeah. So set that aside. Just the value of the pine mushrooms exceeds the value of the trees in yeah. three years. Yeah. So now it's called the Blackwater uh, Community Managed Forest Region. And it's a pine mushroom region that... Yeah. Everybody goes and slays pines every year. It's a, it's a matsutake. Uh, the Latin is Trichloma mangiavare. Like mangiavare. I think so. That makes me feel like I can eat, definitely eat that. Yeah, uh, but it's it's a trichloma. It likes sandy soil. Has a gray gray stipe base and white gills and smells like cinnamon and is one of my absolute favorite mushrooms. You can eat it raw. You can shave it on ramen, fry it in duck fat, grill it on the barbecue. We put them in the toaster. We cut fat slices. We brush it with lemon and soy. Toast them up. Your toaster smokes like it's on fire, but they pop out and they're all crispy and you just eat them just like that. They're great. They're, um... Those keen-eared amongst you would have noticed that I had a woman's voice. Well, I didn't. That was, in fact, a friend of mine called Jane. Thank you very much, Jane, for helping with that interview with Alex there. Now I'm off to a lovely sedate river to wild away an afternoon fly fishing with my very good friend, John Renston. When I started doing this podcast, I didn't really fathom how much I do get out and about and how many different places I go to and how many different foragers I meet. And it just serendipitously, I seem to fall into having another wonderful experience with another amazing person. And today's been no exception. Today I found myself fly fishing along a river with John Renston, as in foraged London John Renston. Well, he kind of does a bit of everything. He's, he's, we're here fly fishing, but he's also a forager. He's, he teaches foraging. He's messing about with wild booze as well. He, I know he does a little bit of sort of herbal medicine. I think he's just, just similar to me. He's a plant geek. He's someone that just gets excited about new experiences and, and plants are right in the middle of that. Is that about right, John, do you think? 
How about plants are pretentious enough? No, um, no, I'm uh, enthusiast of lots of things, never ever to be an expert on anything because of all the disparate topics that, that border what, what you and I do, really. Uh, it's, it's constantly being seduced by different avenues, you know, whether it's uh, herbal first aid or herbal medicine or sort of wild horticulture or permaculture or survivalism or it, foraging seems to just wander off in myriad different directions. Although today we're on a, a beautiful stretch, a very posh river in Hampshire. So this is hardly the survivalist end of the foraging scale. This is more kind of the um, sort of tweed and wellies going fly fishing. It's nice. Posh river, what makes it a bit of a posh? Um, the price it is to fish on here oh, if you're yeah. not actually like we are on the ponds getting so, yeah, something for free. Borrowing it, but less about that. We're, we're we ponsing, not poaching though. That's, that's a big distinction, I think. I'm just going to mumble and tie the fly on. Okay, I did actually. Well, I'll go off for a second and talk something about that. There's a book, and I'm not going to say the title of the book because I don't want to get the forager into trouble, but someone decided to write about their foraging experiences, and they they described a patch of river where they went fishing all the time and somewhere where they, they got loads of fish. What they described was there was such a good orator, such a good uh, storyteller, sorry, such a good storyteller, that he described this patch of river perfectly and the people that tend to their own rivers tend to know every little nook and cranny of it anyway someone nearby read the book and thought hang on that's my river and in britain we kind of own sections of rivers so what this guy did was write a book about poaching (laughs) and got busted and And he ended up moving out of the area that he lived in because everybody knew knew him as the poacher fella even though this wasn't what he set out to do Anyway, that aside, like, so fly fishing is something that kind of I've dipped in and out of. I don't really know what I'm doing with it. I've punched it. I've punched. I've put a fly on top of the river once or twice and it's just sat there and it hasn't done anything. So what, what am I not doing, John? Um, you're probably not fishing a river where fish are feeding. Right. Um, well, this is the sea. Ah, well... I couldn't tell you anything about that, but I could tell you about fishing on a river in Hampshire. There's not much moving on the river at the moment. It's mid-August. Essentially, what we're looking for is fish that are coming up to the surface and uh, to take fly life that's falling onto the water. And when they do that, their mouth breaks the surface and they produce what looks like a target in the water, which makes it, if you're into fishing, it makes it great sport. Because rather than just dipping your rod in a bit of water and hoping, you're actually fishing for a specific fish in a specific place. And once you see that fish rise, the intention is then for you to cast your line with your tiny little artificial fly about one and a half foot upstream of that target it's produced because the fish's vision is refracted by about 25%. So it's swimming, facing upstream, and you want to drop that fly right into its sight line so it just goes, oh, I had one tasty mouthful, there's another one, whoop, job done. Is that that roughly clear? I guess, yeah, no, that was completely clear. But what's not clear is how long it takes before you can master something like that. I, I don't know that mastery is something that anybody who's honest about these things is a state that anybody ever reaches i used to go fly fishing when i was about 12 or 13 and me and my friend andy were taught by a a friend of my dad's who was a very bluff yorkshireman and he made a stand in a field with two fly rods and two fly lines without anything on the end and just did this casting practice and he shouted 11 o'clock one o'clock 11 o'clock one o'clock which is the angle that the rod's supposed to be at and after about two minutes he shouted at my friend you 
I've got it. And he shouted at me, you haven't. <laughs> and that was it. That was my lesson in flycast. So I have been practicing quite a lot since. I had a big gap like maybe 20 something years because I didn't have access to a nice bit of river and now I've managed to sneak my way in here so I can come and fish here about six times a year so my casting's got a bit got a bit better it's one of those things like all things it takes it takes time to get any good at it I'm not that I'm not that good I'm adequate well let's see if you've got it we'll record that in a sec you can see my fly on the water it's quite only... a fast moving river as well so you've got to it contend is. with yeah. You fly moving as well. Yeah. So you need to land it above him. He only came up once. Sometimes they'll be feeding, they'll be going two or three times, and then you've got a good target to aim for as well. And as you can see, you start to get drag on the line, and the fly starts moving at a different speed to everything else in the water, and it looks unnatural, and he won't take it. They talk about presentation. So that's how <laughs> well you present the fly onto the surface of the water. That'll catch him. I can't see anything moving. Now what we should have done if I'd been a little less impetuous is done what Kit would do, who I fish with, who is a very experienced fisherman. He would have just probably sat here for about 15 minutes and waited until he came again and seen exactly, exactly where the fish was. Instead I just went, oh, oh fish, quick, let's fish for him. But it's a good sign. It's a good sign to see something rising. We'll just keep walking on up the river, okay? You didn't catch a fish, John, but it's been a nice afternoon. It's been a lovely, lovely afternoon. It's just nice to spend some time on a river, be in a beautiful spot, have some good company, and uh, just enjoy being in the countryside, isn't it? What I did get is a bag full of watercress. Very nice indeed. Make sure you cook it, because there's a possibility of liver fluke. Uh, yeah, so cook it, what, a bit of onion, just a little soup or something like that? Yeah, what something like that, make it into soup. I've seen a book. Sweat it, just eat it. I've seen a book. What's it called? Something about city foraging. Oh, a, I know that one. Geezer with a very similar name to you. What's your surname again? Uh, Renston. Yeah, that's him. Oh, I've I've seen that one. The eatable, the eatable urban edible. So John's written a book called The Edible City, and there's a recipe in there, and I'm going to follow that, and that will be how I finish this month's podcast. So the next time I stole, you, I do think I stole that recipe from Roger Phillips. So I'm going to make Roger Phillips' <laughs> recipe. All right, thanks, Roger Phillips. <laughs> And thank you, John. What a lovely afternoon.